So we are in 2 Kings, at the end of chapter 4. What we're doing, for those of you who are just dropping in, is we're doing Elijah and Elisha. We finished Elijah, and so we're now on Elisha. And we just finished him raising the Shunammite's son from the dead. So now he's off doing something else. And I'm hoping that I will get to the business with the uh, Syrians tonight. I'm in 2 Kings 4.38. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. As the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Go, sit on the large pot, and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of the things that existed in biblical Israel were prophet schools. They had basically institutions whose job was to train prophets. You'd have a prophet that was established and he would have a bunch of disciples and they would work with them until they either got a gift or were shown that they were not going to get one. But the idea of having groups of prophets together is perfectly biblical. You know, you have an Elisha here who's obviously got this group of prophets that he's at least feeding, perhaps shepherding. Because you remember earlier on when Elijah got taken up, Elijah was doing the tour around Israel trying to shake Elisha. So he said, all right, I'm going here, you stay here. Elisha says, no way, went with it. Then then Elijah says, well, I'm going to go down here. You stay back here while I go there. No, no way, I'm going with you. And they went about three or four places, and they wound up, oddly enough, in Gilgal, which is on the Jordan River. And there was a school of prophets there at that time, and Elijah and Elisha left them there, went across the Jordan, split the water, and walked across on dry land, and then Elisha came back alone. And the school of the prophets said, well, let's go look for him. The reason that they gave was, well, let's go look for him. Perhaps God just picked him up and moved him a couple hundred yards, and we'll, we'll find him. Being a slightly cynical mind, I don't know that there wasn't perhaps some suspicion that we may find where you clobbered him and stashed him under a rock so you could get his ministry. Don't know that that's true, but Elisha says, no, don't bother to go look for him. And they insisted, and finally says, fine, go ahead. And they went and looked, and finally came back, and he says, see, I told you so. So I, I just found that incident kind of strange. In fact, I find a whole lot of things about Elisha strange. He's kind of a weird guy. So anyway, he's got this flock of prophets who are down at Gilgal, and he decides to set them up a pot of stew. So now we're down to verse 39. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine, gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds, and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Now, I looked this up last week. I don't remember what it is, but there's a, apparently a wild cucumber-like gourd that grows in that area. Have any of you ever grown squash and had them cross-pollinate the wrong way? And you can't eat them. I had that happen to me in the garden one time. They somehow got pollinated by something wild, and they were absolutely inedible. I don't know that they were toxic, but really, really bitter. And I tried everything. I tried you know, sugar. I tried all sorts of stuff. And but I, you just couldn't eat them. 
I don't know that the guys are saying there's death in the pot. I don't know whether it was actually toxic or they had just gotten really lousy gourds. Because, as I say, I, I can eat almost anything. I, you know, food never intimidates me, I, and I'll try anything. I couldn't eat these. Verse 41. He said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. And again, I have no idea, other than throwing some flour in there, what he did. But, and it may entirely have been supernatural. Verse 42. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. All right, so this is then the time of first fruits, which is in the spring, right after Passover, because he's bringing barley loaves as opposed to wheat loaves. If you count it the way we do, it's the first Sunday after the first Saturday after Passover. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he replied, give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. And of course, this should remind you of Yeshua with loaves and fishes. As I was saying at some point, one of the things that Yeshua does is he does the stuff that Elijah and Elisha did. As he's coming in and doing this stuff, the people who are seeing this are thinking, wait a minute, I know about this from Elijah. I know about this from Elijah. Now, raising people from the dead, curing people, feeding more people than the food will support. All those kinds of things are reminiscent back to these two prophets. So Yeshua, when he does that, is very much in the tradition of the Tanakh and it's not really the case that he's inventing anything new here because one of the things we'll see in this next vignette is Elisha is going to be able to cure a leper. So curing lepers, raising people from the dead, feeding more people than you have food for are all things that Elijah and Elisha did. One of the things that he asks is, who do you say I am? Remember what he asked of his disciples, who do you say I am? And they said, well, some people say you're Elijah because you're doing the same stuff. Now, on to chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given Syria a victory. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria. He would cure him of this leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. One of the things that we've talked about before, but it's worth repeating. The Syrians had their own gods. That doesn't mean that they didn't believe in Jehovah. It's just that they didn't believe that Jehovah was the only God. They were perfectly content to have Jehovah be a God, just like Baal was a God, Ramon was a God, 
Dagon was a god, etc. This guy Jehovah is the god of the Hebrews. So if this little girl says, the prophet of my God will be able to cure you of your leprosy, that's a perfectly believable thing and doesn't in any way negate his faith in whatever gods he worships. I will direct you back to the Exodus. And you had servants of the Egyptian gods who were able to do signs and wonders. Remember, they were able to turn rods into snakes. They were able to turn water into blood. So the idea that people who worship other gods are not connected to spiritual things and able to do things miraculously is biblical. What the Bible says is stay away from that stuff, not because it doesn't work, but because it does work and you'll get connected up with some spirits that I don't want you connected with. And you've also got the, the witch at Endor who's able to conjure up Samuel and talk to him. Back to the original point, the fact that this Hebrew slave says, you need to go to a prophet of my God in Samaria, and he'll fix you. Naaman, okay, cool. You got a God that, that specializes in leprosy? I'll go talk to him, no problem. But that doesn't in any way negate what I'm doing with my own gods. It's just your God is able to do this. I haven't been able to get it out of my God, so I'll go talk for years. And so anyway, he is the second in command, if you will, to the king of Syria, and obviously highly favored. And so the king of Syria sends a note with him and says, go on down to the king of Israel. So I'm now in verse five and a half, maybe. So he went, taking with him 10 talents of silver, and a talent is about 70 pounds, so it's about 700 pounds of silver. I mean, this guy is willing to pay seriously to get cured of his leprosy. So we went taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, shekel is about half an ounce, and 10 changes of clothing. Verse 6, And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. Then the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure the man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. In other words, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send somebody ostensibly friendly, asking you to do something that's impossible, and then when you don't do it, I'm going to be mad. That's what's going through the king's mind. Verse 8, but when Elijah, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger to him, saying, Go, wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored, and you shall be clean. This just sort of naturally ticks Naaman off because he's traveled all this way. And the other part of that is, not only is he being disrespected in his mind, he has got this whole retinue that has come down with him. In other words, he isn't coming down all by himself. He's got all the pack animals that are carrying stuff. He's got a, an honor guard with him. So he walks up to the man of God expecting, A, that the man of God is going to treat him like something special. And then, as it says here in a minute, 
that he's going to do some wild mumbo-jumbo that's going to cause him to be healed. So when the maid comes out and says, oh, yeah, go wash in the Jordan, it'll be fine. It's like, <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> Verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. I was expecting kind of a show for this kind of money and didn't get it. Verse 12. Are not Abana and Parfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a child, and he was clean. In this case, one of his servants, which is not necessarily the little girl, says, I understand that your pride's been wounded here, boss, but before you go off in a huff, complete with leprosy, at least go take a shot at what the guy said, told you to do. And then if it doesn't work, go off in a huff. Verse 15, Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, Elijah, as the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mules load of earth. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Jehovah. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, go in peace. What he's saying is, I'm convinced that Jehovah is the real deal, and I won't offer sacrifices to anybody else. However, I have an official position. I am, in fact, the second in command of the king. And the king has not been convinced that Jehovah is the only God, and the king is going to continue to go into the temple of Rimon to do state functions. And it's one of my duties when he goes into the temple to go with him. So what I'm doing is asking in advance that Jehovah forgive me for doing that because I'm not worshiping, it's simply something I have to do in my official capacity. So I'm at verse 19 and a half. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from his chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets, Please give them a talent of silver and two festal garments. Okay, the deal here is your servant, or the prophet just sent me off not accepting anything. The servant beats feet after me, and I'm looking back, and I see the servant, and I says, everything okay? And Gehazi says, oh yeah, he didn't need anything 
while you were here, but since you have left, we have had two visitors, the sons of the prophet, and he wants you to give something to them. Okay? In other words, my master hasn't changed his mind. This isn't for him. This is for these visiting uh, prophets. Verse 23. And Naaman said, Be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two festal garments and laid them on two of his servants. They carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent them in a way, and they departed. Notice when he came to the hill. I am inferring from this that they went back, but they're still out of eyeshot of whatever Elisha is staying in. At that point, Gehazi takes the swag, turns the servants around, and ships them back because he doesn't want these two servants trailing him like stray puppies that show up in the house, and, and Elisha sees what's going on. I'm assuming that's what this mention of the hill is meant to convey. Verse 25. He went in and stood before his master. And Elijah said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from the chariot to meet you? So what he's saying is when Naaman turned from his chariot and met him, my heart knew this. Was it of time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. What's happened here is Naaman has committed fraud in the name of Elisha. He's used Elisha's name and authority to commit fraud on Naaman, and that just sort of naturally ticks Elisha off. Not that it seems to take much to do that. So what he does is he said, all right, the transaction here was for a leprosy cure. The Syrian brought this money to be cured of leprosy. You took the money. So what we're going to do is we're going to back out the cure, and you're going to get it because you took the money. We're now in 2 Kings 6. Now the sons of the prophet said to Elijah, See, the place where we dwell under your care is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. So we got too many of us, ten pounds of prophets in a five-pound bag kind of a thing. So what we need to do is make an addition or make an annex or make a new place for us to live. So let's all go down to the Jordan and cut some wood. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, the axe head fell into the water. And he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. Now, it's fairly important to understand that an axe is a really valuable thing in that economy. Metal's really expensive. It's really hard to get. It's really hard to refine. I don't know whether this was a bronze axe or an iron axe, but it would not have been something inexpensive at all. So the idea here that this guy has lost an axe head, this is a big deal. Verse 6, the man of God said, where did it fall? Then he showed him the place. He cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, take it up. 
Spur reached out his hand and took it. And the only place I can go with this is Yeshua walking on water. You know, the idea that he's able to do things with water and things that would normally sink that normal folks can't do. But other than that, I have no idea what's going on. So now down to verse 8. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him. So he saved himself there more than once or twice. What's happening is Elisha is God's drone, and he's watching the movement of the Syrian army, and he's passing intelligence to the king of Israel, letting him know where they're going to be. So they are not able to surprise him. One of the big things in war is you always want to have a battle on a time and a place of your choosing, not a time and a place of the enemy's choosing. So when the enemy is set up for a battle, that's where you don't want to be. And you, in fact, want to set yourself up some places advantageous to you, not to the enemy. Verse 11. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? There's a spy in the camp that is sending messages to the king of Israel. Verse 12. And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who was in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. Where have we heard about Dothan before? That's where Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. So somebody has figured out that the king of Israel has got supernatural intelligence about where things are. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take Elijah, who is the one who's the conduit. And you remember I said that one of the things the kings of Israel do when they get a prophecy that they don't like is they'll grab the prophet and rough him up and get him to change his prophecy. I think that's because the words of the prophet have power. So if the prophet says a thing, the thing will come to pass. So if you can get him to say what you want him to say, the thing that he says will come to pass. So the idea here is, well, we've got a prophet that is giving intelligence to the king of Israel. Let's go grab him, and that'll be the end of that. He's the radio. He's the contact. He's the conduit. We get rid of that, and the intelligence goes away. They are not thinking in terms of God popping up another prophet that will be able to do this. They think that this is exclusive to Elisha, and maybe it is. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I want to camp here a minute and talk about this. What this indicates to me is something, perhaps, of the mechanism of prophecy. Because it's clear that Elisha is not operating on faith as we understand it. So if you're Davy Crockett at the Alamo, I have faith in God that I'm going to be delivered. 
you have nothing except your belief in God and your prayer that he'll protect you. That doesn't seem to be what's going on with Elisha. Elisha seems to be able to see, oh, Syrian army, no problem. The army that we've got here is far mightier, and he seems to see that because he asks that his servant's eyes be opened. He doesn't ask that his eyes be opened. What I'm inferring there is one of the aspects of the mechanism of prophecy is the ability to see things spiritually that are hidden from other people. All through this, I really don't get the impression that the prophets are operating on what we would call faith. They seem to know. Well, I think with David's little life, that's a case of faith and courage, where he says, this guy's insulting the people of God. I'm not going to stand for it. God, I need your help, and I'm picking up my sling, and we're going to go do this. That, I believe, is faith. Elisha here doesn't seem to operate on that basis. Neither did Elijah, by the way. Remember, again, when King Ahab sent the groups of 50 guys to pick him up, and he's sitting out there in a field having a picnic or on top of a hill or wherever he is, and this commander of a group of 50 comes up and says, the king commands your presence. No. And zap. That doesn't seem to be faith in the sense that we understand faith. That seems to be mechanical. And the reason I wanted to get to this passage is because this seems to me to be the clearest application of spiritual mechanics in the life of these prophets. I read a really interesting phrase. It is humanity's job to make God's will manifest on earth. What a prophet does, and the obvious example is Moses at Korah's rebellion, where Korah is not backing down. So Moses stands in front of the tent and says, God, if these people die a normal death of all humanity, I'm not your man. If I am your man, the earth will open up and swallow them. The earth opens up and swallows them. I do not believe that it's the case that God said, okay, Moses, I'm going to open up the earth, say so. Because two days later, God basically tells Moses, you're my man, but sit down, you're killing too many of my people. And what God then does is ratify Moses' ministry with the business of the rods. Bring each of the tribes up here, have them write their name on the staff, put them before the ark, and the rod that buds, that's my man, and it's Aaron. So what God does is ratify Moses' authority by bringing forth life. What Moses does is ratify his authority by killing people. They are God's deputies or God's agents. And they have their own free will. We read, in fact, in Elijah and Elijah, both, God tells Elijah something small, and Elijah just expands it and says all sorts of other stuff based around that little kernel that God told him. But there's a whole bunch of stuff that gets said and happens that God did not mention initially. You're my deputy, you have my authority, and you have my power at your disposal. And, oh, by the way, if I catch you misusing it, I will take you out myself. But... Until then, what you say is what's going to happen. We see that with Moses, we see that with Elijah, we see that with Elisha, where they say, this is what's going to happen, and it does. And by the way, Elijah and Elijah seem to be cranky, which indicates to me that having that kind of power and authority on you is not a comfortable place to be. Somebody like closing prayer.
什么？